Los Angeles, 1937. There are lots of guys like J.J. Gittes. They're easy to find, if you want to find them. Mr. Gittes, have we ever met? Well, no. Never? Never. Since you agree with me that we've never met before, you must also agree with me that I've never hired you to do anything, certainly not spy on my husband. I don't get tough with anyone, Mr. Giddies. My lawyer does. You're listening to Because You Watched with Charlie and Francesco. I'm Charlie. And I'm Francesco. Fuck yeah. This is a podcast <laughs> where we take a film that enjoyed significant mainstream success and use them as a starting point to discuss lesser-known films that we think deserve greater attention. Forget it, Charlie. It's Because You Watched. <laughs> nice. Very energetic today. Um, hi, so as we've said, this is Because You Watched. And today we're going to be talking about... 1974's Chinatown, directed by, who knows? <laughs> Someone we would rather not talk about, but we probably have to. At some point, and if you want to skip this episode because you'd rather not deal with a Romplansky movie, totally understandable. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of other episodes coming. <laughs> yeah, go listen to those, please. Completely fair, hours. fair enough. <laughs> um, our wonderful guest today is Lily. Yeah, wonderful Hello. friend and brilliant scholar, Lily. <laughs> a uh, scholar. <laughs> do you want to tell us a bit about yourself, Lily? Yes. She's a scholar. I love talking about myself. Um, I'm Lily, Lily Zhuang. And uh, I, uh, what do I do? I just finished my master's in film and philosophy. I'm a filmmaker and I have a bunch of opinions. Okay. And sometimes people ask me about them, sometimes they don't, but that is not my business. Well, we're, uh, we're, 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 we're the former category. <laughs> yeah, great, great. That's a good start. Um, yeah, I guess that's... Oh, and apparently I'm a scholar, yes. Um, so, synopsis of Chinatown. Private eye Jake Giddis lives off the murky moral climate of sunbeg pre-World War II Southern California. Hired by a beautiful socialite to investigate her husband's extramarital affair, Giddies is swept into a maelstrom of double-dealing and deadly deceits and covering a web of personal and political scandals that come crashing together. That was no. good. <laughs> it just sort of happened. I yeah. didn't plan it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so why don't we just start with first opinions, good or bad movie? Hard to pinpoint, because I, I, I have thought about this in preparation for this, obviously, and it's, I okay, I like it a lot. I've, I've seen it a couple of times, and uh, obviously there are problematic elements that we will probably talk about as well. What if we didn't? <laughs> what, <laughs> what if we built what if up we just the said, conversation about <laughs> problematic stuff and we just never touched it? <laughs> we just say that we know, but we don't have to prove it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I find it... <laughs> Yeah, I um I found it hard to pinpoint what I liked about it because I do like the film and my 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 guess for myself is that it's kind of like what Chinatown symbolizes in the film almost where it's a mood that it creates. You can't really see it but it's lurking mm-hmm. and and it's the way that everything in the film comes together, all the elements come together to create that mood of you know it's there, but you don't know what it is. And that's what makes it great to me. In your opinion, is Chinatown a vibe movie? A vibe? It is most certainly a vibe. <laughs> it's, uh, a vibe <laughs> it's a movie more about vibe than it is about plot. Yes. <laughs> I think, uh, well, we'll get into what I think is maybe more of a vibe neo-noir mm. than Chinatown later. For sure. um, what do you think, Francesco? Um, I mean, I, I do think it's, 
it's objectively a really good film. It's mm-hmm. not flawless, perhaps, and mm. we'll get into that. I don't know, am, am I the person at this table who likes Chinatown the most out of the three of us? What, what are your thoughts, Charlie? I think you like it more than I do. Okay. I, I Again, I like this movie. I love film noir. It's probably my favourite genre or subgenre, however you want to categorise it. I think that Chinatown is very well made, and I think you only have to watch uh, The Two Jakes, <laughs> which is ostensibly a very similar plot, but has a vital element missing. And I don't just mean because Polanski isn't directing it, I just mean that it's a much more lazy attempt at what Chinatown is doing, in my mm. opinion. We won't, this isn't a podcast about The Two Jakes. That's yeah. not... Or the unmade third sequel, Gaddis versus Gaddis. He's the least interesting part of the movie, and he's yeah. what's being carried over I mean, into, into potential sequels. It was just going to be part of the Kramer versus Kramer extended universe, and then they scrapped it. But, <laughs> but yeah, I again, I like this movie. I think that it is not my favourite neo-noir by mm. a very long way. I also think that in terms of how... It could be considered a revisionist noir. I think it, that's possibly the weakest thing it has going for it. I think its revisionism is pretty surface and pretty uninteresting to me. It's basically, basically to me, it's a film noir made later and freed from the Hays Code mm-hmm. and not really adding anything new in its place because the Hays Code was terrible, but it also forced people to find creative solutions to get around it. And that's how I think some of the... Exactly. And I think that's how some of the best films and film noirs uh, came about. And we're going to get to my pick, which is very, very pertinent (laughs) to that. No, I I, I agree. Look, Uh, I I like this film. I don't love this film, but I do like it a lot. But look, crucially, regarding what you said about it being a classical noir made in the 70s, among all the four films you're presenting today, it's the only film that is set 30 years before it was that's made. A good po- that's a good um, point. All the other ones are saying their contemporary time and they're yeah. looking at their contemporary time. I, I wonder if it still would have been had it not been dealing with a specific crisis in LA's history. Mm-hmm. There was a, uh, a dam burst that led to the deaths of 431 people and that's alluded to and I think the screenwriter Robert Town wanted to make a film around that. I don't know if the other things in the film mean that it has to be set in the 1930s. The other thing is that 1930s is before the heyday of film noir. Mm. It's not like they're making a film in tribute to that genre because it's specifically set in a period before mm-hmm. the Maltese Falcon. Mm-hmm. So I suppose, what do you, you? we all like it. What do we like about it? Um, I mean, first of all, the whole mystery investigation is very engaging. I also always appreciate political films about corrupt systems that don't inscribe the corruptness of the system within a villainous individual. The whole system is in on the conspiracy, the police, the billionaires, everyone, which leads to the film's ultimate almost nihilistic cynicism, which is a problem I do have with it, but I do appreciate its systemic critique. Sure, but you say there's not one figure that sort of personifies it. And I think there very much is in John Houston's uh, Oh yeah, yeah but, he's, but, he, but he's not puppeteering the whole thing on his own. Every single institution in LA is in on it. It just so happens to be the central figurehead around which the Hollywood plot 
Sure. It's, it's a circles. system that allows him to do so. Yeah, that, that, yeah. That, I yeah. think that's a good way of putting it. He is at the top of the system that has allowed him yeah. to get to the top. He didn't yeah. create the system. Mm. Doesn't he have that line where he says, I, I believe that in the right circumstances, a man is capable of anything. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, yeah. it, it's true of that system. But there is a line where uh, Evelyn, at the end of the film, says he owns the police. Even if he's not orchestrating everything omnipotently, he has his fingers in all these pies. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he, I mean, I do think as a villain, he is terrifying. Oh, yeah. I like that he's not some, like, cackling, no. uh, master-twirling villain. He's, he's just a Southern Republican guy, like many of the real-life villains <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think John Huston playing him is, like, such a master. He's obviously not famous for being an actor, but if you look at him, you just think, oh, this is a powerful guy who's made a lot of money off natural resources. I totally buy that. Fun fact, the scene where he says to Giddy's, uh, Jack Nicholson's character, are you sleeping with my daughter? He said that to Jack Nicholson on the day that his daughter, Angelica Houston, was visiting the set. Oh. And she was dating Jack Nicholson at the time. Did he say that while the cameras were recording or did Polanski pick that up and put it in the script? <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think that Nicholson, I think Nicholson's really good in the film, but I think that he's he's a more interesting audience surrogate rather than being that engaging mm -hmm. on his own. I think the film's not secret weapon because she's so foregrounded, but is Faye Dunaway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And considering she had no direction from Polanski, that he was not interested, he was only interested in how the character looked. Mm -hmm. He yeah. wasn't interested in her personality. To the point where uh, when she had a rogue strand of hair, out of her hair, do he just ripped it off? Yeah, oh God. He, yeah. Okay. he totally just viewed her as a beautiful person to have things happen to. Mm. And I think that it's a credit to her that she was able to imbue the character with no direction. She was able to imbue it with so much agency and mm. so much autonomy that mm. she is so sympathetic, even when she's at odds with our viewpoint, our protagonist. Yeah. Well, it makes sense what you said about Jack Nicholson, like his character being a bit of like an audience substitute because it speaks to that lack of control he has sure. over the narrative. And then what he talks like when he talks about Chinatown, it's, it's about this lawless territory in the same way that Noah Cross, he, he's this villain, but he's like the epitome of a certain system. And then Chinatown is like a microcosm of something that actually goes way beyond its territory. Mm -hmm. And to have a character like Geddes who is just kind of going through everything without, without being in control, that says a lot about what the, what the film is trying to communicate in terms of agency and in terms of a lawless land. We talk about agency, but on paper she's a character that hasn't had a huge amount. She's been totally controlled by her father and then marries her father's business partner. Yeah, from her father's house to her husband's house. Yeah, kind of. it, it, which is very, you know old world, but particularly mm -hmm. for that character who can, you know, easily be seen as a victim. Mm -hmm. Not that that's not that that's all she is, but there's just something so powerful about the performance and it's the fact that she's able to do so much while giving away so little, especially mm -hmm. for the earlier mm -hmm. parts of the film. I think that she is really wonderful and I think that yes, Polanski didn't direct the two Jakes, but also Faye Dunaway isn't in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that without that, Giddes is just a bit of a shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also don't think he's written as well. Mm -hmm. In the sequel. I'm not just going to talk about the sequel. Um, but <laughs> I'm going to take your word for it's it. It's fascinating just to see like the difference between two films, like with certain variables removed, what essentially the same film and same story structure creates. The two Jakes should have been your alternate pick for this episode. <laughs> Absolutely <Yeah>. not. <laughs> What's your relationship like to film noir in general, Lily? 
I've always found it quite hard to explain what it is. Sure. Um, I associate it with a, a cynicism. It's a very simplified way of talking about noir, but it's the part that I think is the most interesting. So I, when I was watching this, I think what I like talking about the most is the cynicism and also this just Nicholson's character. He's a cynic who inadvertently still is trying to do the right thing or to, or to find out what actually happened, even though he, he kind of presents himself, himself as someone who doesn't really care anymore because there's nothing you can do. So do you view it as the mask of not caring is coming off gradually or do you think he grows to care more as the film goes on? I don't think he's caring more. I think he's tried to care less and he's making... Because what happens at the end of the film mirrors what happened to him before and he's trying to prevent that but inadvertently by making the same mistakes, you know, quote-unquote, it happens again. So I think he, he cares the same. He tries not to care as much because he feels like it's, it doesn't go anywhere and it's no use. Well, so much of the film is defined by ghosts of the past. Mm -hmm. I mean, the character that Mulray is based on, William Mulholland, is, you know, haunted by, for, you know, for his whole life, the deaths of all the people from the burst down. Mm -hmm. And you get a hint that the reason why he's getting in the way of Cross's plans because he's terrified of the same thing mm -hmm. happening again. Obviously, Evelyn is haunted by the abuse she suffered by her mm -hmm. father. Jake is haunted by the disaster that he was partly responsible for when he was a police officer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on and on, all these people are having to deal with this sort of this cycle of trauma. And I think that that's what makes all the characters interesting is that it's almost absurdist in the fact they're always pushing the boulder up the hill and it just keeps coming mm -hmm. crashing down. And I think that's very engaging about the film, mm -hmm. but it's also the thing I like least about it. Mm. Okay. Well, something to me interesting regarding the genre, it's like... Noir is probably the classical Hollywood genre I know the least about, which made it so difficult to find a pick for this film. Because <laughs> I was like, I, I've only seen the major like Humphrey Bogart titles and that's yeah. it. <laughs> but hearing about it in this lens, I'm uh, thinking of a comparison with Western, where in Western you have these very individualized central characters, heroes, if you will, or anti-heroes, who go into the village, save the day and go out. Is it fair to say that, like, in noir, the individual holds much less power? It depends on the what. I think part of the thing Lily said is that it's very difficult to define. I think it very much depends. I think that in a lot of cases, the idea... I think more neo-noirs, which is noirs basically made mostly after colour became mainstream, a lot more of them are about detective characters. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of classic noirs don't deal with that sort of plot. So in terms of the individual having power, I think that they do have a lot. If you look at something like Double Indemnity or Sunset Boulevard, it's about characters who make a wrong decision and are then having to claw their ways back from having done that in the first place. Mm -hmm. And they have the power to make that initial choice to set them down the path. They very rarely have the power to claw their way back. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much you know about the genre of giallo, like Italian giallos. But in giallos, like one of the core tenets there is that it's, there's a murder mystery in giallos. And the person investigating it is never a police person. They're always a member of the public. They're always a civilian who is finding themselves, well, usually himself, in, you know, in the midst of this situation of their control. But also for... Chinatown and also the Long Goodbye is a private investigator. It's interesting because they're both not the police, they're, but they're still 
they're the main character, yeah. so then they're the one investigating, who you know, the one that we follow. Oh, yeah, no, in Jalu, it's like a musician, a writer, yeah. like they've got nothing to do with the problem. <laughs> I would say that's more more like classic noir than mm. either of the films that we're talking about. I think it's very rare for classic noir to deal with police officers, and it's not that common for it to be private detective. It became more common as it went on, but as a genre, nebulous as it is, I think part of the reason we think of it so much as being defined by detectives, specifically private detectives, is because of Humphrey Bogart yeah. and because his sort of presence and stardom is so ubiquitous to the genre that we think of it as the Philip Marlowe genre, mm-hmm. even though it's, you know, far more complicated and yeah, nuanced than that. Yeah. yeah, I've also, like, I haven't seen enough French noirs. French crime films are defined by the crises of war and the depression in the same way that American film noir does as well. Mm-hmm. I think that you don't get film noir or a genre like it without the challenges that were specific to the 1940s and 50s. Mm-hmm. And in the 40s, obviously, you have, you're still dealing with depression, economic and emotional. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you funny. and me both, buddy. Um, <laughs> and you're also dealing with World War II, 1950s, you're dealing with the threat of the Cold War. So mm-hmm. I think it's so complicated to define as a genre. I wrote a paper at uni on whether or not it can be properly defined as a genre. And I think that it is a genre insofar as it can be packaged and marketed as one. I think that neo-noir, in comparison, is a genre in that the films are designed to meet certain criteria Mm -hmm. and fit certain tropes in a way that I think that they were just making black and white crime movies Mm -hmm. within the restrictions of the Hays Code. Mm -hmm. I don't get the sense that Polanski and Town are making this movie as a love letter to film noir in a way that a film like Sin City or mm-hmm. The Long Goodbye or Seven can be described to be. That it's not necessarily ticking off tropes. And I don't know whether that's because they weren't interested or because that sort of postmodernist take wasn't as front and centre in their mind. Because they're dealing with a specific instance. It's just that a private detective was the best character to be at the centre of the story. What's, I think it's surprising that Chinatown isn't based on a previous work of fiction. Yeah, which most noirs, at least most of the ones I've seen, are. Yeah, I mean, you have Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler making their movies and then them having to be toned down and the sex and the violence and the corruption has to be toned down for the screen, which is why I think, as much as I love The Big Sleep, I think it's a bit of a mess. Yeah, uh, it, it's a beautiful plot mess. Wise. Oh, it's, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's really, like, wrapped itself in, in circles. Yeah, it's... It's really tied itself in knots, trying to tell a story that's um, Oh God, I, I understood the reference too late. Okay. Because he gets tied up at the end of The Big Sleep, doesn't he? No, I just, I, it was just a clumsy metaphor. Okay. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, I like this movie and I understand why pe- if people want to avoid it, I think there are better Jack Nicholson films. I think there are better neo-noirs. I think there are better Faye Dunaway films. This Where she wasn't good... abused on set. Mind you. Oh, you know, she's great in Network, my favourite movie of oh, all time. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's so good in Network. I have not seen it. It's so uh, good. Yeah. I will watch it. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about what you said about the Western. Mm-hmm. And I think the way I approach noir is, in comparison to Western, it's like a Western deals with the frontier. And it's like, is there? you've got this central character, and it's kind of about taming the wild and mm-hmm. quote-unquote like savage land, you know. Yeah. And then for noir, it's as if, people realize, oh, it's, that's kind of impossible. <laughs> we can't control everything. So I guess that's kind of, that's how I compare a, a Western to a noir in terms of like the frontier. Even in Chinatown, like there's, there's something to be said about 
Chinatown as a microcosm for something quote unquote savage, uh, but yeah. you know quote Most unquote it, very yeah. important. The, the way it's, it's, it's also like uh, man versus nature yes. and man versus like the urban jungle or the asphalt jungle or the asphalt mm. jungle as to well. quote uh, yeah. John Huston. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Concrete jungle. Oh, that's New York. <laughs> <laughs> the way I think of it is kind of similar that I just think of Western versus noir as agoraphobia versus claustrophobia. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, do we have more to say about Chinatown? I don't know if I do, except in the context of the other films. Let's move on to our second pick, The Long Goodbye. Go on. Okay. There's a long goodbye. And it happens every day. Right profile. When some passerby invites your eye to come her way. There'll be a lot of people looking for me as a result of my lovely wife. The thing was a murderer, he murdered his wife. That's a lie. I know he didn't kill and, her. He I'll tell you something else. It's a minor crime. A minor crime, a misdemeanor to kill your wife. The major crime is he stole my money. Your friend stole my money, and the penalty for that is capital punishment. Even as she smiles a quick hello. The Long Goodbye is a 1973 film directed by Robert Altman. Detective Philip Marlowe tries to help a friend who is accused of murdering his wife. That is a remarkably short synopsis <laughs> for a film that is so hardly about the plot. Uh, let's jump into it. I want to start by just saying this is one of my favourite movies of all time, and I love it very, very much. You know what I say about it? It is a long goodbye, and it happens every day. <laughs> Nothing says goodbye like a bullet. <laughs> It's such a good film, honestly, yeah. <laughs> Lily, Lily, you, you, you go on, because like, I think the two of us are just going to joke. <laughs> we, for content, we watched it together. <laughs> oh, oh, that's why. And we were just like losing our shit every time they played the theme. <laughs> so what do I think of the film? I did not know I was going to see Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, it, it's his first role. I did not know. And his entire role is his, he takes his shirt off. That's his whole I thing. I know. So I, I, was, I was watching it. And I spotted him, and I paused it, and I ran, I ran over to the next room, and I told everyone about it. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> great surprise. He's good in this. He doesn't really do anything, but like he's really, he does his for job what, really. For what well. he does, taking his shirt, taking his shirt off, off. And looking menacing, but and, also a bit silly. Yeah. He's kind of a himbo in this movie. Yeah, and he's taking his shirt off, and you see his pecs go ding, 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 ding. Oh yes, yeah, <laughs> I don't think great be, I don't think he'd be a good gangster. <laughs> That's his role in the movie, is to be like a hood. I just feel like a bodybuilder is totally the wrong sort of guy. The yes. wrong sort of muscle. Uh-huh. For that, not that I know the right sort of muscle. <laughs> I went to a gym once and left because it looked like a torture chamber. That's what I think of gyms. Ayo. Yeah. Ayo. <laughs> and I've got muscle. But you can't see them, which is very, very she's, convenient. She, she's ripped. <laughs> um, but yeah, okay, what do I think? What I was really focused on was um, the repetition of the line, it's okay with me. <laughs> <laughs> so good. And it's just the entire the entire film is him mumbling to himself, smoking cigarettes, and just being chill with everything. It's, it's a very, like, je ne sais quoi attitude. And I think it's that was one of my main takeaways, but just his interactions with anyone is just slightly comical because it's slightly off. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I just... Because uh, I'd never watched it before, so this was the first right. time I watched it. Have you seen The Big Sleep? No. Okay. okay. You've seen The Big Sleep? I have, yeah. How does Elliot Gould compare to Humphrey Bogart as Marla? Because I don't think he's that generation's equivalent of Bogart. No, mm. and it's also crucial that 
you know, Bogart films are made in the 40s and set in the 40s or, you know, mm. those, the decades neighboring it. These made in the 70s, set in the 70s, but he's still playing that same type of like 1940s. Like He drives a 1940s detective. car. <laughs> you translate so, it to the 70s. So yeah. it's really official. Whereas Humphrey Bogart, like in The Big Sleep, there's like the... The, all those scenes where it's like, oh no, he walks into a bookshop and all of a sudden the, the bookshop clerk is this woman who's in, immediately horny for him just because he exudes this suaveness and this coolness. There are so many lines in The Log Goodbye where people justify Marlowe as a loser, a chump. It's just, it's just such a fish out of water. And he's okay film. with it. He's yeah. so cool with it. <laughs> the okay only time it. he gets worked up is with his cat. Yes, yes. Yeah, the frustration about the cat food. That's That, that was his emotional yeah, where he, scene. Where, where because the cat only eats one brand of cat food, so he goes to the store. He can't find it. He puts it in the can for the for the brand for the preferred deception food, and then tries and deceives his cat as if the cat could read. What do you think of Elliot Gould in this movie? I think, I think he's cast really well. He's he's got this walk. And, you know, when he's walking, he does a little skip or he does a little dance. And it's just like, yes, yeah, that's great. And I associate him a lot with just friends because that's the first time. It's our generation. Yeah, it's a generational thing. So I just saw Monica and Ross's dad. <laughs> he gives, yeah, he gives it a playfulness, but he plays it as if, as if there's more hidden beneath it. And it comes out when he's drunk. Oh. You know, when he, when he does start shouting and he's, he's, he's cursing at the police, calling them pigs. He takes his tie off, I think, once in the movie. When and that's to save a guy <laughs> yeah. from drowning. I, I didn't, I was, I noticed that. And I was like, why are you taking your tie off now? Because he didn't want to take it off. I think he talks about the tie before. I think, so at some point, Mr. Wade tells him to take off his tie and he doesn't want to because I think Wade thinks his tie looks too cheap yes, or something. Yes, that's it. No, but also in the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger scene where all the gangsters strip mm. down and he's asked to strip down because they want to. I, I don't know, it's a weird homoerotic thing that... But also yeah. it's to show that he has yeah. nothing to hide. Yeah. It's, it's very it's, homoerotic. It's, yeah. <laughs> but, like, but then he takes his... Like, crucially, he takes his tie off, his, he takes his blazer off while everyone else is, like, uh, shirtless. He still keeps his shirt off. No, not everyone. Cause, and, there's, and Pepe? Oh, yeah, because he's like, like I've got scars everywhere. Yeah. Exactly, but it's more like, I don't want to take my shirt off. I've got a bunch of scars. It's really shit. <laughs> and Augustine is very understanding. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, you know what, no, I totally get it. Oh my god, this film has so many characters, or like just background characters, and each of them is like a gold line <laughs> of like one line. Even, even Arnie. <laughs> oh god, it's it's I mean, just such a, such a vibe But movie. part of that yeah. is, I mean, that's just a thing with Altman in general, that he kind of thrives with a cast of crazy, mm. kooky characters, mm. or sort of forced together. But the other thing is that like, a lot of these guys aren't known for acting. Mm. Mark Rydell, he is better known for directing, plays Augustine. Jim, uh, I don't know if pronounce Bouton or Bouton. Jim. <laughs> Our friend Jim. Our friend Jim, Bouton, Bouton, <laughs> Button. <laughs> Bubblicious. <laughs> Bubbles. Um, he's a baseball player. He's not an really? actor. Really? Yeah. And he's hardly in the movie, so it doesn't Which really character is it? Uh, Terry. Oh, oh, Terry Lennox. Oh, wow. okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I liked Harry. Do you? The, 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 isn't, <laughs> no, isn't, I, I David isn't, Arkin. Isn't, isn't Harry the person who was supposed to follow him and they're just like... You know, here's, my, here's where I'm going. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't yeah, like on worry. a piece of paper. <laughs> you know, just to make it easier. And he like 
just wait outside. And then he's like, tries to climb over and he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> it's just opening the door. Hello. Oh my God, I love this movie so much. <laughs> this is oh. a great, I feel like this is a good movie to watch with friends as well. Oh, it's yeah. such an amazing film. Well, I saw it for the very first time in my first year of uni. I just moved to the UK. It was like a morning uni screening. Everyone mumbles in this film. My English wasn't that good. I just, I didn't understand what was happening and I left without understanding it. Then I saw it again the other day and I was like, how have I missed this? My this English was so much better. <laughs> yeah, I, I think also, Marlo, uh, we touched on it, Marlo as a man out of time, a man that belongs in the 40s but is mm. stuck in the 70s. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting that he's never hostile to the 70s. He lives next to a bunch of yoga hippies. Mm-hmm. And he's so nice to them. And he like buys them brownies, <laughs> yeah. brownie mix. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're always like the hippies. That they're always like shirtless and doing yoga. It's like they're not really sexualized because they're, they're just being casually naked. But there are a bunch of like attractive women with their, you know, breasts out for all to see. And every single time another guy enters Marlo's apartment, they're always like ogling at them and be like, "Who are those girls?" Like they're being like hyper, like aggressive and sexualizing to them. Mm. Marlo never gives a shit. He's like the most polite and uh, noir protagonist. <laughs> oh yeah, ever. they they make yeah. candles. <laughs> no, they dip candles. Oh, they they di- don't even oh, make they, candles. They, they dip the candles. <laughs> It's weird because I think that Marlowe, feel free to disagree, I think he does have a horny energy, but I don't think his energy's pervy. Mm. Oh, yeah. But usually if horniness means perviness, to not be pervy you have to also be totally sexless, and he's not. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> but he's just, you know, not seeing anyone right now. Maybe I've got a chance. <laughs> uh, no, maybe I, I will, maybe I won't. That's kind of his attitude towards everything. <laughs> well, he needs to look for his cat first. Yeah, I no, worry. I, I, I can worry about Maybe I'd have a chance if I helped him find his cat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, God. we teased out the elephant in the room earlier, which is the film's score. Do you want to describe the score to us, Charlie? Because so, it's glorious. It is a John Williams score, which is very simple. And it, it's the first time you hear it, it's kind of like a soulful, bluesy song titled The Long Goodbye. And gradually through the first act of the movie, you realize that every song being played in the film, and especially on a rewatch where you know that that's what's going on, you appreciate it a lot. And every song played by a character whether it's on a radio or they're just messing around on the piano at a party. Yeah, diegetic and non-diegetic, all music mm-hmm. in the film. Yeah, because oh. uh, Marlo hums it at some point. Yeah, it's yeah. A, it's amazing, and a random <laughs> character just sings it at one point. At one point, there's he's in Mexico, and there's a funeral procession, and they're playing this new arrangement of it. It's amazing. Yeah, this universe has Mexico. one song. <laughs> <laughs> also, when he drives into Mexico, there's like a mariachi band called. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. The, oh, the I did not notice that. Oh one. no, but earlier on when he drives Terry, Terry Lennox to Mexico, and there's like a. Oh yes, you're right. <laughs> I forgot about that. I, yeah, I was confusing um, the two. You're oh, absolutely right. Oh god! That. Oh, it's that arrangement is beautiful. It, go, I think it the, goes to the the grocery store and like the speakers in the grocery store are playing a different version. Yeah, the, sh- yeah, the shitty uh, supermarket music. <laughs> oh god! It's, it's, it's amazing. I I love it so much. Um, but again, it's it's a song that works in the forties. But then there's sort of the, these arrangements of it that also foreground it in this was so it can be like a new arrangement of a classic and a classic, which I think is kind of an encapsulation of what the film is. But going back to something I said about Marlowe being not in conflict with the 70s, even though he's a bit of a fish out of water, he's not hostile to the 70s, 
But the powers within the 70s are hostile to him. The police are bad to him. The organized crime syndicates are bad to him. His friends are bad to him. Like, Terry seems much more like a 70s guy than Marlowe does. So it's like the counterculture and new developments of the 70s, he's kind of cool with. It's more the abuse of power that is happening, you know, under Nixon and with all the stuff going on in the world in California at that time. It's really interesting that they have something against him, but he's sort of cool with everything as long as he's not bothered. <laughs> he, I mean, he's a cool guy. If you needed a private detective, would you call Marlowe, as played by Elliot Gould, or Giddies, as played by Jack Nicholson? I'd say Marlowe didn't really uncover as much... I, I feel like towards... That's not ruining the ending of the movie. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, no, but there isn't as much to Yeah, there, Yeah, there isn't yeah. as much. Like, things just kind of happen. Yeah. So I think maybe I'd go for Jack Nicholson's Giddies. But that's after having seen the film. I mean, like, more as a judge of character. Like, if you... I, I guess Jack Nicholson immediately probably strikes you as more professional, but if I spend 10 minutes with them, Jack Nicholson would start telling some racist jokes. Yes. Whereas uh, Marlo would just be like, just also, cool to hang yeah. out with. I think, so, I think uh, Marlo yeah. would be my friend. Well, that's <laughs> the thing, I'd love to grab a drink with Marlo. Yeah. I don't know if I'd hire yeah. him. I think no, it is, no thank you. No, I was saying the opposite. I was saying, like, oh, if I looked at their like, you know, newspaper ad, I would go with Jack Nicholson. But if I met them in person, I'd be like, no, if I'm, you know, going to work closely with this person throughout the investigation, I'd rather work with someone like Marlowe. I will point out, though, yeah. the idea that, that Gittes is a good detective isn't entirely born out. I mean, he doesn't do any research when he's hired the first time by the woman who turns out not to be mm -hmm. Mrs. <laughs> yeah. Mulray. It would have been a very straightforward thing to find out, and obviously he can't for the plot to work. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, he's not a great detective either. <laughs> the only reason why he ends up uncovering the mystery is that he's the only person who found out and didn't get killed. That's true. I, I feel like the forces against Marlowe are yeah. a bit more chill. Augustine is terrifying in an unhinged way, but he's not, Unpredictable. like... Unpredictable. <laughs> yeah, but he's not, like, John Huston... No. Seven foot tall, yeah. but also, built like a bear. But also, Marlo isn't being threatened or attacked for anything he did. It's all the people who are after Terry Lennox, both the mm -hmm. police and uh, Augustine, who then go after him because Terry Lennox is dead. Does anyone ever shoot at Marlo? I don't think they do. No. Like, people are violent towards him, but mm -hmm. it never escalates to that sort of gangster movie. I don't think they thing. ever even strike him. I mean, the two scenes with Augustine, one is like this, like, chilling like he breaks a bottle mm -hmm. on a woman's face in order to show him that oh if i do that to someone i love imagine what i do to you which is like absolutely oh yeah. which is which yeah. is gross and terrifying yeah. but yeah. that is such a yeah. good line yeah. for a villain yeah. and the second scene the stripping scene is like he isn't even undressed no but he, like, but he, he says, threatens like, to castrate him yeah yeah and then he never does it because circumstances aren't the police yeah. violent him they are yeah he gets battered by the police oh right yeah. that's that's true which is actually a very very good point uh before we get into the crimson kimono that both of these 1970s films chinatown and the long goodbye are very anti-police or at least like chinatown cynical about the police yeah. and their efficacy in you know preserving law and order uh, the long goodbye expressly anti-police well the other thing is that giddies is a former cop Mm. Marlowe, I don't get that vibe from him. I mean, in The Big Sleep, obviously it's not the same canon, but he is a former investigator for the district attorney. He's not... I don't get cop vibes from him. Yeah, here is just a guy. I don't know. I, I think comparing it to Chinatown is fascinating because it you know comes out a year before Chinatown. It's not even... It can't be seen as a response to mm -hmm. Chinatown because it came out before, but I think those films will kind of always be, to some extent, in dialogue with each other. Yeah. Um, last 
thing before we move on to talk about the Crimson Kimono. What do you guys think of Sterling Hayden as Roger Wade in this movie? Do you mean his character, his performance? Well, well, I, I, I just think his interplay with Gould is so funny. Marlboro. <laughs> yeah, he calls him Marlboro, which I thought was like... Marlboro Man. Yeah, Marlboro Man, but then I was like, oh no, his name is similar to... Oh, I think it's also an interesting contrast between, you know, uh, he's this like big, hyper aggressive, hyper masculine. He's huge. He has a terrifying presence in every scene, especially because he's a drunkard, he's aggressive, he's violent. But then you have this scene where the doctor. Beringer. Beringer. Played by uh, Henry Gibson. Yeah, who he owes money to, just slaps him across the face. And all of a sudden, his whole bravado and his whole uh, mask slips off and he just, you know, puts his head down tail between his legs and walks out. Whereas Marlowe, who's this like, you know, skinny, chill, laid back guy, is much more able to stand up for himself when he's he needs to. He's never really intimidated yeah, by anything. It, he's just chill. What's Sterling Hayden's belt situation in this movie? He's got like <laughs> the belt over like the long shirt. It's called it's fashion. Like a, it's like a uh... shirt. <laughs> so what's going on with He's just, uh, I'm just, obs- he's so big. He's just, you know, apparently he was like drunk and stoned the entire time they were filming. So he's not playing drunk. He is drunk and just improvising. <laughs> that's called method acting. <laughs> no, no, it's called alcoholism. <laughs> I think that's pretty much all we have to say mm-hmm. on um, The Long Goodbye. If you want to watch a 1970s private detective neo-noir that wasn't directed by a sex criminal. Um... <laughs> okay, then it's time to move on to The Crimson Kimono. sensational murder of Sugar Torch, Burlesque Queen, triggers a manhunt in the teeming streets of Little Tokyo in Los Angeles, and fires a turbulent love story between an American girl and a Japanese boy. You mean you want to marry her? You wouldn't have said it that way if I were white. It can never work out, Chris. If he feels like that, what can I expect from you? Everything. Because I love you. Sugar Torch, the stripper, has been murdered. The killer has also shot a painting figuring her wearing a crimson kimono. Two detectives, white LAPD detective Charlie and Japanese-American LAPD detective Joe, are tasked with investigating her murder. While doing so, they get into contact with the artist who painted the crimson kimono, a young woman by the name of Chris, who they both fall in love with. Yeah, this is a film that, as I told you earlier, I know nothing about noirs. I was at a loss for what to pick for this episode. And then I just went to this film festival where they were showing this as a retrospective and it just fell into my lap. It is such a charming film. It's a flawed film. (laughs) Like, don't get me wrong, the writing is a bit... It's a bit unsubtle, let's put it like that. But I chose it because... Well, first of all, we're not talking about Chinatown, we're talking about Little Tokyo, but there is a film that is much more from the perspective of the Japanese-American characters and imbues especially uh, Joko Jaku with a lot of dignity. And also, I wanted to talk about Samuel Fuller as a director who, in his personal life, was a person that you should definitely look into. Someone I wanted to champion, as opposed to Polanski. But first, before we get to that, thoughts about the film? I just want to tell you, there are three taglines on the poster to this movie. Okay, that's also what I want, yeah. Uh, read them out do loud. You, you don't want to read them? No, you go. Okay, so the first one is, yes, this is a beautiful American girl in the arms of a Japanese boy. 
A motion picture of startling frankness. Dot, dot, dot. Vivid emotions. No, uh, not end vivid emotions. Ellipses. Yeah, it's a, like the weirdest <laughs> thing about that is the grammar. <laughs> the last one is what was his strange appeal for American girls? Yeah, why would. Oh, God. Why would that's also the end of the trailer because that was the first thing I watched. I was like, oh, oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, think, I, think it's, uh, I think they say strange fascination. So, you know, a bit of a so if you look variation. At the, yeah, if you look at the marketing of this film, you're like, what is this rubbish? But. Would you agree with me that Samuel Fuller is probably as progressive as it comes for mm-hmm, a 1959 mm-hmm. white American director? So it's like, you know, the studio themselves didn't do a really good job of like conveying the nuance of the racial perspective of this You film. don't say. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I, I, I watched the trailer and I saw the poster and then I watched the film and I was like, oh, wait, this is not at all what I thought it was going to be. This is way better. <laughs> it would have been weird if what we thought it was going to be was what Francesca would pick. <laughs> yeah. You were right to do a double take, but it is exactly what you think there is a Japanese boy kissing a white woman on the poster the audacity oh god it's a shame that it's on the poster not because like that's not a bold thing to show in the 1950s but like it is a plot point but also like I mean when I was watching the film without having because I watched it at the festival I didn't really look much into it because I was like I'm just gonna get the ticket and go to it and I kept thinking is it gonna happen is it gonna happen they're not gonna show it are they it's 1959 code they're not gonna do it on screen and the you know the poster kind of spoils that it, it doesn't it happen and they do show it on screen and yeah yes <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> but, no, but let's talk about the characters so Joe and Charlie this film, uh, this is a love triangle in the truest sense of the word, where Joe and Charlie are both in love with Chris, but they're also clearly in love with each other. Like, if polyamory oh, yeah. was a thing in the 50s... Joe's blood runs through Charlie's veins. Like, literally. They, literally. They, they, That's so hot. They, they're roommates <laughs> And together. they were roommates. They were, no, but they literally, like, he's, like, bragging about, oh, yeah, we picked all our furniture together. Went furni- they went antiquing. <laughs> 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 so okay. gay. It's, oh my god, they're I literally... Love I love it. But also, you say it's a love triangle in the truest sense of the word. It's throwing a spanner in the works is Mac, who is clearly in love with Chris. No, oh, but Mac is in love with herself. Okay, so... Okay, so Mac doesn't Mac, need Mac, anyone. Mac second need second bourbon, point, let's talk, about, let's talk about Mac. Mac possibly, is my hero. Possibly the single best character written in any film. So, the character arc of Mac is that, at the beginning of the film, she's this alcoholic artist. At the end of the film, she's this alcoholic mm. artist. And that's it. That's her character. She's an alcoholic. So she loves compelling. Drinking, and no one cares. She doesn't care. No one judges her for it. She loves her uh, bourbon. Half of my notes when I was watching this film in preparation from the episode are quotes by Mac. One of them being, love does much, but bourbon does everything. Oh, Mac and her bourbon. <laughs> and, and my other favorite quote by her is when the interracial relationship starts and uh, Chris goes to Mac and she's like, have you ever been with a guy who's like from a different world than you? And she's like, oh, many times. No, <laughs> no I mean, racially different world than you. And like her eyes light up and she just goes, there was a Hindu in Mumbai. <laughs> I, I uh, want to have a drink with her. She is awesome. Oh, you're probably going to bu- have lots of drinks with her. <laughs> I don't buy that she was ever with a man, day. though. She still gives me bisexual energy. Yeah, yeah. She reminds yeah. me of Catherine Hepburn. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I just love how like uncomplicated and unashamedly herself mm-hmm. she is throughout the film. Yeah. Just, like, also, just the, like they, her and Chris, they just move into their flat. <laughs> And it's just like, yeah, and of course, Chris is moving in with us for her own protection, but of course, because she's a woman, she'll be more comfortable with another woman around. 
So you should move into, how big is your flat? <laughs> so I think some of the listeners who haven't seen the film might have noticed, we're talking about a noir murder mystery. We haven't talked much about the murder mystery itself. Because it gets wrapped up so quickly. And it's also not the point of the film. It's like, I think it's more of we an excuse. We don't really need the answer per se. No, it's like, it's more of an excuse for the two of them to, to have a to sword fight. Chris, yeah, <laughs> have a sword fight over Chris. No, I know yeah. it's not technically yeah. a sword fight. It's a, it's a candle fight. It's a candle fight. A candle fight. Dipped by, <laughs> Dipped by, by the, the girls. girls. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, it, it's really not, it, it's, it's so bad bones and it's like, it's clear that, that Samuel Fuller, and I get more into him later, he's like, he uses genre, even in his other films, he uses classical Hollywood genres as vehicles to make political films and films about a political agenda or a political statement. And this is like very unashamedly that. So what do we think about the love triangle and more specifically the interracial relationship as is presented in the film and not on the poster? I mean, Chris kind of sucks. Like, she's not really as much of a character as Mac. No, she's not. But I do think something I love so much about this is that first you see Charlie flirt with her and she's into him. Like She kisses she, him. Yeah, exactly. And But like, it's not even like, you know, a cop flirting with a witness is sketchy sketchy <laughs> but but like she's immediately like receptive to it and she flirts back so oh, sure, there's sure. nothing like it's it's presented as very like uncomplicatedly consensual but then you have this scene where she's alone together with joe and he's like and it's clear Talking that about the two art. Of, yeah and it's good that the two of them connect on such a deeper level where he talks about his father's paintings he plays the piano for her and it's like you can see why she would be attracted to Charlie at the beginning, but who then, wouldn't be? Yeah, no, and, and also like Charlie is like a great podcast host. <laughs> oh, stop he it! He can grow a beard. Yeah. But it's also like Charlie in the film is like, oh god, LAPD cookie cutter white boy with a Japanese partner. You're sure he's gonna be this like racist asshole? No, he's so nice. Because <laughs> so, by the yeah. way, when yeah. he isn't, and there's like the hint of racism, which apparently. Joe has never seen in his entire career. Oh, yeah, I was a bit like, oh, that's, that's the worst Joe. line in the film. Yeah. I, yeah. He fought in the Korean War, fighting Asian men in the Korean War and never faced any racism. Let's just a historical anomaly. So I think, okay, I have theories about this. I think that because this film is so aggressively going against the code, Samuel Fuller was playing it safe yeah. on every other front other than the interracial relationship. In for, uh... Because I have watched this previous film, uh, The Steel Helmet, set during the Korean War, and the protagonist of that film is a racist American soldier. So it's not like he doesn't think that racism existed in American institutions. I just think he's like throwing the line in there in order to avoid going under too much fire and to avoid this film getting scrapped and himself getting blacklisted. Or... Is it a joke? Like, can it be read as him going... It's a bit tongue-in-cheek. He, yeah, yeah, he yeah. knows so, that you know he knows. Because the other option is just not have the line. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just kind of have that as implied that he hadn't experienced that before. But the fact that it's so explicitly said by someone who implicitly got in trouble for his portrayal of the army during the Steel Helmet, I find that kind of interesting. He's been like, and there was no racism in the army, but no matter what Samuel Fuller says. And all the other yeah. cops were so nice to me. <laughs> but it also makes no sense if you think about it in the context of the film, because basically what happens is that during the love triangle, he develops a paranoia that he's lesser than Charlie because he's not white. 
And you don't develop that type of paranoia if you've never experienced racism. Mm -hmm. That is a paranoia that is informed by how he's been treated in the past. Yeah. So he's, you think character-wise yeah. it makes no sense? Well, he's saying he's never experienced it in the police. He's not saying that he's never experienced it, period. But he has clearly experienced racism in the past. Otherwise, he wouldn't have this... Um, Gut reaction. Yeah, exactly. But I also think that this film has some very interesting and very subtle criticisms of the army. Go on. So much of it is set in and around Little Tokyo. Much more than Chinatown is set in Chinatown. There is a film that's very much set around Little Tokyo. And that's part of why Joe is enlisted to investigate the case because he can speak Japanese and he can speak with the locals. Some of whom are Korean. <laughs> yeah, oh, Shoto, who is a huge guy. Never speaks a single line. He picks up people and throws them. <laughs> That's his thing. Literally. Yeah. But there's also this scene where he's going to ask questions to this older Japanese guy. And he finds him in a Japanese cemetery, a Japanese war cemetery from the Korean War, showing essentially how many Japanese-American soldiers died in the Korean War fighting for the American army. Two scenes later, like immediately afterwards, they go into Little Tokyo to look for Shoto. And... It's kind of big in the frame, you can't really miss it, but it's like it's never addressed explicitly by the characters of the dialogue. There's just a poster, an army recruitment poster in yeah, Little yeah. Tokyo. So there is almost something there about, you know, first showing all of the Japanese victims of the war and then showing a recruitment poster in Little Tokyo, showing that they're still, you know, trying to take from Little Tokyo and put them in the army to die for the for the great American country that is treating them so well, clearly. Yeah, there's no racism in the <laughs> yeah, LAPD. Yeah. The other thing, there's like that close-up of the quotes from Eisenhower. Oh, yeah. So, so I think, yeah, you're right, it is very much foregrounded. What I really liked about this film was this sensibility to like diasporic identities. Because... Mm -hmm. Straight at the beginning, Joe mentions the difference between Nisei and Kibei, I think. So Nisei would be a second generation Japanese American, so born in the US, but, but originally Japanese. And then Kibei would be born in the US, but raised in Japan. And he, I think he's talking about a girl that he's kind of seeing, but he thinks, oh, it's not really worth it because we'll, we'll just be arguing about the old country. It unpacks a little bit throughout the film, actually, just the, the complexity of diasporic identity and then it actually also just walks you through sites and spaces of Japanese American identity like even the the Buddhist temple so I was I was very I was very surprised to see a movie from the 50s almost 60s yeah. uh, that addresses Japanese American or just Asian American identity with that kind of sensibility sensitivity but also the fact that like you have an Asian actor as a protagonist yes. And he like just plays a normal person mm -hmm. with no foreign accent. Mm -hmm. And most of the, uh, the I think the only Japanese character in the film with an accent is the older guy, who mm -hmm. I think is implied to be a first generation yeah. immigrant. Yeah. But all of the second generation immigrant Asian characters yeah. are not stereotyped at all. The only one with an accent is an Asian nun who speaks with a British accent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's Curiously. like, and, and that's why... Fuller is like, is so, despite being, you know, an old white American director, is so sensitive. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the sensitivity, I'm assuming, comes from his life experience. 
first of all, he was Jewish, so he wasn't exactly part of the, you know, the, the hegemon mm. uh, during the first half of the 20th century. Yeah, being a Jew in Hollywood makes you a real outsider. <laughs> but, but then he fought in World War II mm-hmm. against uh, the Nazis, yeah. and he participated in the liberation of the Falkenau extermination camp, mm-hmm. of which he shot some uh, 16mm footage, which I haven't seen. It is part of a documentary about the camp, the footage that Fuller shot. I'm assuming that the things he's seen during the experience probably stuck with him because, you know, like just, you know, liberating a death camp, especially as a Jewish person, can't exactly be the most pleasant experience in the world. And he came back to America and started directing films in the studio system under the Hays Code, trying to bring a lot of dignity to, as you said, Lily, immigrant characters or characters of color, and making films that are... Lesbian painters. Lesbian painters. Well, bisexual painters. <laughs> sure, really don't buy it for a yeah. second. <laughs> and bisexual LAPD cops, because Joe and Charlie are also talking yes. to each other. They're just roommates. But, yeah, Mex supremacy. Yeah, who, who went to Ikea together. <laughs> <laughs> so he's definitely someone with an incredible insight into the human condition. I will say that the way he conveys it on film can be considered a bit on the nose by today's standards. Like, he, he's not a very subtle screenwriter, especially when it comes to his political uh, scripts. But regardless of that, I just think he's such, he's such a thought-provoking director. So, yeah. I agree. I mean, going back to what you guys were saying about the, you know, non-stereotyping and humanization mm. of immigrant characters, particularly Japanese characters, it's, you know, it's important to just note this is only 14 years after the end of World War II, and only six years after the end of the Korean War. Mm-hmm. You know, like, Asian Americans weren't having a particularly easy time in the 50s. I know, absolutely. You can totally believe that, especially for a generation that fought in World War II, there is this lingering racism against Asian characters in films and the fact that he's like, no, fuck you, this guy's not only my protagonist and essentially becomes the main protagonist mm-hmm. by the end of the movie, but we're also making it clear that, no, this is the guy that fought for America, mm-hmm. same as any of you, yeah. against people that looked more like him than than you did and you were very aware of that during the war. Mm-hmm. And he's a rich character with like internal dimensions and complexities. And backstory. And backstory yeah. and all of that. And that's that whole thing about his father as an artist oh, is beautiful. Oh, that was beautiful. So you talk about stuff being on the nose, but I think sometimes, especially in these movies which aren't naturalistic, mm-hmm. that are quite stylized because of just how they're made and yeah. the style of acting. And the, time, really fits, and the context yeah. in which it is made to, to really kind of just put it all out there and make it clear, this is what you're supposed to see, this is what I'm trying to tell you, yeah. Oh, yeah, the other thing I want to say is it's easy to kind of compartmentalize our choices, and I think it's true to some extent as... The Long Goodbye being neo-noir, Piccadilly, which we'll get to in a sec, being proto-noir, which is like before noir was even a thing, and this being classic noir. But I think it's just important to acknowledge that this this movie comes out in 1959, which is the very tail end of classic film noir as we think of it. A lot of people think of the final classic film noir as Orson Welles' Touch of Evil, which comes out in 1958, mm-hmm. a year before this movie. And... Have you guys ever seen that movie? Uh, ages ago. It's one where Charlton Heston yeah. is in brownface. Uh, so oh, the fact that yeah. that is oh, I do know a, about year that. Before, <laughs> a year before this, <laughs> uh, so Charlton Heston is in brownface playing a Mexican, and the fact that you have this quite comparatively nuanced mm-hmm. and sympathetic take on race relations in California compared to Touch of Evil, which comes out a year before, which you know I think is a really, really good movie, despite that glaring flaw. Mm-hmm. 
I, I think that's really interesting. I think that what does this film sort of say as a transition into where noir lives and breathes in the next generation of Hollywood filmmaking? And I think last thing I'll say about uh, Samir Fuller and race, I've also seen his uh, 1980s film, His Take on Race, which is a film called White Dog, which I'm not going to get into because it's definitely the film I'm going to present if we ever do an episode on Jaws. But I wanted to bring it up because Polanski was hired by the studio to direct that film oh. <laughs> and then ended up not doing it because, crucially, in you know late 1970s, early 1980s, when they were producing that film, Polanski had to flee to Europe because of his uh, allegations. I don't know, it's just a very curious bit of trivia that I found that links the two directors together where, you know, Polanski has to escape from his terrible allegations and Samuel Fuller picks up this film, which I will talk about in a future episode, but not today. Anything more to add? Watching this, I, I started Googling the, like, the Nisei troops because I didn't really know what they were before. And then I actually read that, so Nisei troops are the, uh, during the Second World War, a lot of Japanese people in the US were put in concentration camps. But then the Nisei people, who are the second generation Japanese Americans, um, there were actually quite a lot of them who volunteered or were drafted uh, for the army. And I think one of the most decorated troops from the US was actually a Nisei troop. So that's... Wow. There you go. There you go. A very interesting fact. Um, kind of buried by history, I assume. Yeah. But yeah. So let us move on to our third pick. From Chinatown all the way across the ocean to another neighborhood called Piccadilly. A young Chinese woman working in the kitchen at a London dance club is given the chance to become the club's main act, which soon leads to a plot of betrayal, forbidden love, and murder. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> murder? Murder! I couldn't tell there wasn't any sound. Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because crucially, 1929, this is still a silent film uh, made in the sound era. It's only, it's only shortly after The Jazz Singer comes out. Yeah, and it's in Britain, it's not in America, so I don't know, this sound take a while to travel all the way here, or am I being racist against well, when British you, people? When you... <laughs> <laughs> the thing is that when this film was made in 1929, it was kind of when sound was up and coming, and so the entire film is a silent film, but the year after, they re-released it with a prologue, which actually has recorded dialogue, um, which I only found out about, like, yesterday. <laughs> While which... cramming research for the episode. Yes. We, we all do that. It was, it was very important. <laughs> um, it's interesting in terms of, like, film history, you know, technology, blah, blah, blah. But it also... Um, it's basically Valentine Wilmot, who is talking to a stranger who arrives at this kind of tavern-like way. So it's in the countryside. So he no longer is running Piccadilly Club, uh, but he's the stranger who's just come back from Shanghai, of course. And the stranger starts telling him how much he just missed Piccadilly. And then the stranger is like, oh, wait, aren't you Valentine Wilmot from Piccadilly Club? And then Valentine explains how he was just so done with the city. He's got his flowers here and, and, his, and his dog. Why would I want to go 
back to Piccadilly, basically. And um, the stranger says, well, if it wasn't for Piccadilly, I don't think I would have ever left China. And then Valentine goes, well, if it wasn't for China, I don't think I would have ever left Piccadilly. Oh, God. <laughs> so, but, well, doesn't that's, very, that, that's very Caligari-ish. Yeah. Doesn't that make him more of a noir, like the whole flashback that's, framing? Yes. Yeah. Although, as we have said earlier, obviously this film is not a noir yeah. because what noir wasn't proto. a thing when it was made. Yeah, proto-noir. I'm sure someone's already used the term proto-noir, but I, I'm just going to ha- happily <laughs> overuse it this whole episode. Um, uh, it's a lovely movie. Yes, it is. So... Anna Mae Wong is such an interesting person and I'm so happy to see that the last couple of years people are talking about her more. So for me, she's obviously like she's a star of this this film. And when I was thinking about it in comparison to Chinatown, like Chinatown is a film where the actual space of Chinatown is barely visible. It's this thing that hangs around a bit. Like and, it's, and it's where like the nightmarish climax takes place. Yes, yeah. yeah. So it's it, where people go to die. Yeah, so like its entire presence is an absence and it becomes this bubble that's supposed to be like very mysterious and lawless and dangerous. And in Piccadilly, it's kind of like Anna Mae Wong's character in her performance as like Shosho the Chinese dancing wonder. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we talked earlier about Joku Jaku in the Crimson Kimono, I didn't shout out the actor James Shigeta. But James Shigeta, as great as he is, not, a, not that it's a competition, but holy shit does Hanami Wong command this entire film. I was seeing that in that scene, not to spoil it, but there's that scene where she's face to face with Mabel. Mm-hmm. And she says, oh, he's too old for you. And mm-hmm. she says, no, you're too old for him. <laughs> Which is, that moment really struck me that, oh my God, this woman has total mastery of this craft. So much of this film is about intelligibility. It's anime Wong and also her... It's quite meta, actually. Um, it's anime Wong and her character knowing that in order to be seen, in order to be visible and to have some sort of agency, they have to identify with a certain stereotype. So she's only intelligible in context with the clothes she wears, the costumes, the lights, the music, and only then does she have an identity in the eyes of, like... The, the people who other her or are looking at her. Um, so she's always surrounded with different fabrics and there's always things on the wall. Like, it's never just her, almost. Mm-hmm. And it's quite interesting because I think it's easy to say, like, oh, it's just a stereotype. It's very, like, Orientalist and, and exotic. But there's a knowingness that changes that. Because yeah. there's actually a, a scene where she, she signs her name. Shosho signs her name. And it's actually Anna Mae Wong's Chinese name. This seemed to be... A few too many syllables. To <laughs> yeah, so so it's literally like anime Wong putting her signature on the character and as the character. Yeah. So that's what I mean. But then she gets quite asked meta. to translate it into um, Latin characters, doesn't she? Like right next to it, she rewrites the. Yeah, she, yeah, she yeah. Out. yeah, yeah. So like she crosses out, and I think she writes it again or something. And also like when they're picking a costume for her act. You know, she's the one who's in charge of where the costume is picked and which one it is. And she doesn't put it on to, to show Valentine, like, this is no, what it looks like. Her boyfriend it puts it on. So there's <laughs> a, it's a, it's, I think this is where, like, the kind of almost camp element comes. Like the, yeah. the performativity of certain, like, identities or something. Yeah. But also the agency that she she kind of gains just by being the being the person who does it knowingly. Yeah. Sure. Uh, now that that's a really good point. I think the conversation around race and interracial relationships is surprisingly nuanced in this film. Mm. Right, like they go to the dance hall. And they see the other interracial couple. No, but in regard to the scene where her boyfriend wears her costume, I did. 
as new as this film is, we still need to keep in mind that it was made in 1929 mm-hmm. and it can make the white audiences too uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So I almost it has saw, some yeah, issues. <laughs> I, I almost saw the scene to as playing into the stereotype of Asian men being more feminine mm-hmm. than white or black men. Yeah. As funny and campy as it is, uh, in the context of a film that is not the most progressive, mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't put it past the film to be doing something like this. But also what I love about that scene, in contrast is, so I was re-watching it and I texted Charlie, I was like, it's a really good film for Chinatown. It would have been a perfect film for Parasite. <laughs> because, like it's really good for Chinatown in its second half when mm-hmm. it becomes more noirish and more mysterious mm. but the first half is literally like you have the uh, wealthy dance floor in the Piccadilly Club and then the hidden away kitchen with all she's of the she's dancing in the yeah, kitchen yeah exactly yeah. and there's the contrast between Mabel on the stage and yeah. her in the kitchen which is like this class and racial separation between the two of them but then when she gets given the stage as you said she like takes command of it and what is crucial about that scene where she buys the dress is that her boyfriend runs that shop. So what she's doing mm-hmm. is that she's taking Valentine into the shop and she's like, you're going to buy the most expensive dress up my boyfriend's store so we can make some money out of it and you're going to hire my boyfriend to play music yes. in my act. So that is very Parasite where she's mm-hmm. like... And, and she's taking advantage of an occasion that would normally be completely precluded of people mm-hmm. of her demographic class and racial so i'm not saying she's doing anything wrong there i'm like i'm like i, I was rooting for her to steal more money yes. off of the guy <laughs> so, yeah yeah i i hadn't thought about because i i knew you thought it would be a good connection with parasite and i didn't see it but no you drawing a line under it there i see it now <laughs> uh i i like it. yeah it's not the most nuanced but i'm just mean for its time and in that mm-hmm. respect yeah. the fact they are like yeah racism's a thing and it's also the reason why anime wong went to Europe that part of her life yeah, she was American yeah right? yeah because yeah. yeah she was she was born in LA mm-hmm. and then she was so done with being typecast that um, in the US that she went to Europe uh, where censorship laws were different and then she made a couple of films uh, in Europe and then she went back to the US and then had to face like one of I think it's like historically one of the the most infamous cases when it comes to discrimination when it, uh, with casting is this film called the good earth and she had for a very long time, made very clear that she wanted to to be part of that film as the main character, Olan, if it was ever made into a film. Oh, so, so it was a book. Yeah, yes, it was it was a book. So yeah, so an adaptation of the the, the book, The Good Earth, and um, but because of anti miscegenation laws and also the, the Hays Code, she wasn't cast. Not she wasn't even considered seriously for this film that it actually had a good story about Asian characters that weren't just stereotypes. So she didn't end up getting that role, but she was offered the only character that was a bit distasteful <laughs> in, in the film. And she was so disappointed by that, that she actually traveled uh, to China because of that, that disappointment. And she actually famously said like, oh, you, you asked me as a person, um, I think she says, with Chinese blood to play the only... The thing is that what, what she was trying to get away from was uh, the dichotomy of uh, Madame Butterfly or, or Dragon, Dragon Lady. Lady. And then the actual female lead went to a, I think, Hungarian-American, a white about, actress in yellowface. Yeah, and she won the Oscar for it that year. What? Which, which actress? Yeah. Name and shame. <laughs> <laughs> Louise Rayner. And uh, because the male lead was played by Paul Mooney, mm-hmm. also in yellowface. And so because he's not actually... 
Asian, and Mae Wong wasn't allowed to play the female lead. Oh, because they could have been cast as uh, love interests to each other. Samuel Fuller should have made that film. Yes. <laughs> Cut to a few decades later, and John Wayne is playing Genghis Khan. Oh, God. <laughs> I think that is the yeah. most egregious example yeah. of... But it's, you know, the whole white actor in yellow face being more okay than an actual Asian person, you know, playing an Asian character is... It goes with, like, Orientalism and the desire and also disgust towards anything that is other. So I think, like, Anna Mae Wong's Chineseness was too real for an audience that just would not have it. I was having a conversation about this the other night. I was at my aunt and uncle's and we were talking about Helen Mirren playing Golda Meir, who was the Prime Minister of Israel um, in the 60s. And the discussion was about should should non-Jewish actors be able to play Jewish characters because, you know, passing for white, that's a big part of some people's identity. Mm -hmm. And going back to what you're saying about being confronted with realness, Mm -hmm. I said, yes, there are a lot of Jewish actors, but a lot of actors don't get to that level because they look too Jewish. Mm -hmm. And that includes non-Jewish actors, but the fact that you would rather stick a prosthetic nose Mm -hmm. on Helen Mirren than cast a Jewish actress who looks remotely like her. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. It's confronting people with, no, this is a group of people and they look like... And, and so the same conversations are happening now and it's just so yeah. depressing how little it's progress still, we've yeah. made. Mm-hmm. But it, 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 do, it does kind of put some context on the Crimson Kimono poster saying, yes, this is a beautiful American <laughs> You're girl. You're actually in the looking Japanese at Because like, people wouldn't believe it. I yeah. also like, because I just noticed, it says, this is a beautiful American girl in the arms of a Japanese boy, implying that if you were an ugly American girl, it would be <laughs> completely <laughs> ordinary. <laughs> but also that he's not beautiful. <laughs> what? Talks, and also, no, but the poster is implying a beautiful American yeah, yeah, girl. Yeah. It's like, no, he's, he's, a, he's, he's a cutie. Oh, yeah, he is a, cute. In the arms of a handsome Japanese boy. Oh, is it, does it say handsome? No, it doesn't. It, it should, though. No, it should. Last thing of yellow face. You know, Steven Seagal wanted, was working on making a Genghis Khan movie <laughs> until, like, was. fairly recently because he claimed, like, he was Japanese. Oh, God. What? <laughs> Genghis Khan. Who wasn't even Japanese? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, wait. Hold on. <laughs> no, but it's... It, it, I feel, like, kind of bad that we can't talk too much about Piccadilly because so much of it happens at the very end. But is there a way we can discuss the ending without... Uh, my view is it's a movie that is nearly 100 years old. You know if you what? care about spoilers. <laughs> you, you, you know what? We are at the tail end of this section. Uh, I'm going to impost edit a time code to where you can skip if you don't want to li- listen to spoilers about the ending. But let's talk about the ending of Piccadilly now. Thank you. Hello. Future Francesco here. Hope you're having a good time. You can skip to 1 hour, 12 minutes and 10 seconds to avoid spoilers. Now, back to the episode. Yes. Do you want to take us into your okay. thoughts about the ending? My thoughts about the ending, well, it's actually like the final shot where you see people walking around with like the newspaper posters mm-hmm. and it just says like life goes on and it's it's quite meta. Like it's, oh, someone died and it doesn't matter. A, a, a big a big, a big, died. yeah, everybody cared about yeah, yeah. this public figure. Oh, the, oh my God, Shosha, the, the Chinese dancing wonder yeah. and nobody cares. That, that, but yeah. it's, it's probably the film's closest comparison to Chinatown is it's ending this very like cynical nihilistic mm-hmm. like oh it's gonna leave yeah. it's this monumental thing that you spend two hours following as a film viewer just another day in the news cycle mm-hmm. everyone's gonna forget yeah. about it tomorrow people are disposable yeah. almost uh, yeah but also something I wanted to address when we're discussing this film in relation to race the way that the murder plot is solved makes no sense Ugh. so this is what I think happened this yeah. is why I think it does make sense I think that 
Mabel was so freaked out by Shosho grabbing a dagger because she saw the gun that she fires the gun and faints at the same time. Oh, and misses. Mm -hmm. And misses. Oh, and that's when the guy finds it on the ground. And she thinks she did it because Mm -hmm. next thing she knows, Shosho's dead. Yeah. Even though Jim, so I yeah. think it does make sense. It does, no, you're right. It's not you're, clear, but yeah. it, I think yeah. you're perfectly because then because then he finds Valentine's gun on the ground. Okay, it makes perfect sense, but then it doesn't make any sense from a narrative perspective. The fact that, oh yeah, like you have this perfectly narrative coherent murder, and you have this almost ending where it's like. That would have uh, been a good ending. Yeah, where it's like it turns out that the white woman did it, and she's likely not going to face any repercussions. Very Chinatown-esque cynicism mm, mm-hmm. about the system, mm-hmm. working against the little guy. Mm-hmm. But then it turns out, oh no, the jealous Asian boyfriend yeah. did it. Yeah. I, was, I was annoyed by that ending. Yeah, me, yeah. T- me yeah. too. Because the, the entire film's treatment of the boyfriend, first of all, he's not really treated as the boyfriend. It's, it's just kind of implied, but he's so desexualized. Like, when it comes to Asian masculinity in a lot of films and just in the media it's so desexualized they're supposed to be you know they're they're also like emasculated and it's i think that's that's what bothers me a little bit about that ending too because it just just puts everything on him and of course it was the the jealous asian boyfriend also he throughout the film is kind of just an extension of Mm -hmm. anime one Mm. and i i think you can make an argument that like symbolically him killing her is the severing of that the fact that he is constantly living in her shadow. Unfortunately, the film does not make that point at mm-hmm. all. No. <laughs> I think there is. I think there is a way to do it that adds yeah. nuance to the conversation. Yeah. I don't think the film does that. It could have worked. It could have worked. It's, so I don't think the fact that he did it is necessarily bad. It's just the way that that's the ending. It was kind of very last minute thrown in there. And uh, the Asian yeah. guy did it. Yeah. <laughs> it was clear that it was done as a way of pandering to the to the white British audience to be like I I I don't know. It felt to me again. This is all conjecture, but it felt to me like. They did want to make a semi-progressive film for the time, but then they were like, oh, this might mm-hmm. create too much of an uproar. We should yeah. put a bit of a bow on it to, or in order not to stir up too much trouble. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah very likely. I get that. Okay. Um, any final remarks on Piccadilly? Anime Wong. Brilliant. I second that. <laughs> I third that. Copycat. You should see, have you seen Shanghai Express? No. It's, uh, it's her and Merlina Dietrich. Okay. And, and it's like... So gay. <laughs> I, I love it. It's so it's yeah yeah, and that that's uh, that's not a silent film. So you can hear her speak and just her voice. It's it makes it even better. It's oh, wow, even gayer. <laughs> I do have a confession to make just about my relationship with silent movies is that I do really struggle with them because I'm so easily distracted that having to engage constantly mm-hmm. and not knowing when you can take your eyes away in case something's yeah. going to come up, yeah. some dialogue's going to come up, I usually struggle. I think that I did struggle with Piccadilly more than I would have had it been either a sound film yeah. or a silent film that kind of follows a more kinetic form, like mm-hmm. a physical comedy or like an expressionist yeah. Yeah. movie. Yeah. And it's, I mean, like, it is eventually like very visually striking we're talking about it as yeah. a proto-noir there are all of these sequences with like chiaroscuros and like there's this like match cut of Shosho hugging valentine which cuts to a shadow of mabel on the mm-hmm. wall and it's it's so stylized yeah. and it's very like proto-noirish but it's also like yeah I, I think even a lot of listeners might be alienated from it because it is a silent film and honestly, that's that's fair. Silent films are uh, we're not very used to to, to, to me, engaging with them. To me, it, it 
it worked quite well with just the element of you know focusing on composition of an image mm. because it's so much about like racial masquerade mm. it, it's not a literally masquerade. yeah yeah like. <laughs> it, it's not criticism of the film mm -hmm. i i, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think what you're yeah. saying about composition is absolutely right and it does draw more attention to it i just in all honesty, I think I enjoyed it less than I mm -hmm, would have yeah. for that reason, as well, some, just as one of the short attention span. Well, Lily, you're going to direct the sound remake uh, quite soon, so we're looking forward to that. And, and I will play Anime Wong. Yes, in, in yellow face. No, it's, it's just going it, to be oh, actually 2% Japanese. <laughs> so, to finish up, let's do the double bill question. Yeah. So, which of these three movies is, I don't know why I'm making it sound so dramatic. <laughs> Which of these three movies will be the perfect double bill to go with Chinatown? Is it one of them? Is it all of them? Is it none of them? I mean, there is an objective answer, which is the long goodbye. Uh, I totally agree, I, and I'm so <laughs> glad you said it so I don't sound that, like a dick. No, but it is the objective answer, but I let you sing its praises. Um, I think to, I already did that. To draw a comparison with, with Chinatown. I think to me, to, to talk a bit about the Crimson Kimono, it's a film that you should watch if you have uh, personal moral issues with engaging with a director like Roman Polanski, regardless of the quality of his films. You can engage with a director like Samuel Fuller without feeling too bad about yourself. And secondly, it is a film about LA, which, although it doesn't tell quite a sweeping, you know, city-level conspiracy story, it does tell a story of the people of LA, some of the people in LA who have been forgotten by cinema. And it gives them dignity and it gives them a platform. So if you're interested in noirs and you're, if you're interested in uh, Los Angeles cinema, then The Crimson Kimono is absolutely a film you should seek out together with Chinatown. Just to add to what Francesco's saying, I mean, first of all, it's also interesting to see something that is very much in the middle of classic and neo-noir, if you're interested in noir as a whole. Um, the other thing is that if you like, well, I imagine most of us are people who want more diversity in the films we watch and are frustrated that there doesn't seem to be great black or great Asian movie stars of the past. Well, they were there. They were working. They were out there. And both Piccadilly and Crimson Kimono are examples of this. And I hope, yeah. I'm not, you know, too much taking the obvious, but so much of the narrative around diversity in film mm -hmm. is that it didn't really happen until, until much later in the 20th mm -hmm. century. Mm -hmm. But no, these people have always been a part yeah. of yeah. filmmaking. And I think it's important the films like both of these are remembered and watched just as confirmation of, yeah, this we, is we this was happening. We couldn't have Michelle Yeoh today without Anna May Wong yesterday. I was <laughs> going to make that same point, but I was too <laughs> reductive. But yeah, my, whenever you hear people talk about the good old days when there wasn't any forced diversity in films, send them back to the good old days and tell them to watch The Crimson Kimono or yeah. Piccadilly. Well, <laughs> it's when every shred of diversity had to be fought for. Yeah. Which do you think is the best double bill? Yeah, mm. you didn't answer. I think Piccadilly is great. Yeah. Um, just to just to push the conversation that started in Chinatown a bit further. Yeah, um, I yeah. agree. I and agree. also, like related to the point you were making earlier, exactly because it it's a silent film, it has to do so much visually. Mm -hmm. Whereas Samuel Fuller, you could argue, he uses dialogue a bit too much. Is 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 a bit on the nose with his dialogue. Piccadilly doesn't have that tool too in its arsenal. So if you're someone who just likes noir cinema because of the visual feast that it is, then go back and watch Piccadilly because mm -hmm. that's where a lot of that came from. Uh, well, Lily, you've been wonderful. How can people who 
like the sound of your opinions, <laughs> follow your work. Only those, please. Uh, <laughs> no trolls. Or goblins. We, so, will, we will look for you. <laughs> I've got a team. Um, I am mainly on Instagram, so it's at Zhuang Lily. Zhuang as in Z-H-U-A-N-G. Lily with two L's. Um, and, uh, At the I w- beginning, Lily. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I'm also going to be more active on Vimeo. Okay. Oh. Are you going to be posting some of your work there? Yes, so I'm working on a short film at the moment. Um, and it's called And I Thought of Home. It's an experimental documentary film. It's like diary filmmaking, but instead of one person being the, the writer there's eight people working together without working together Ooh. so it's strangers also the, like it's a lot of um visual artists and writers who all have their own forms of expression uh, coming together to kind of make this tapestry well if you want to follow us we are at bcu watch pod on twitter and at bcu watch podcast on instagram thanks as always to our esteemed producer jade corbett thanks again to lily Thank you, Francesco, and thank you for listening.